Hey everyone, some very exciting news to share. Recode Decode has been named the podcast of the year by Adweek. Take that, Michael Barbero. No, he's a friend of mine. Too bad, Michael. I still won this one. Thank you so much to all of you for an incredible 2019. We're so delighted and proud to bring you this podcast every week, and we are looking forward to a bigger and better 2020. Now on with the show. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's nostalgic for the days when people thought Mark Zuckerberg might run for president, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Margaret O'Mara, a history professor from the University of Washington who studies and teaches about the intersection of U.S. politics and the tech industry. She's written a new book that came out this summer called The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. I've wanted to long get her on the podcast to talk about this. Margaret, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks, Kara. It's great to be here. Thanks. Now, you've written this, as you were just saying to me, this is your first trade book. Explain. Talk about your previous book so people get a sense of the stuff you've covered. Yeah. So I I had two books that were both academic presses. The first one was about Silicon Valley. It's about Mm -hmm. the Cold War and the military-industrial complex and the kind of economic geography that came out of it. It was published by Princeton um, a while back. That's when I started my and, work and on the Valley. it interested you why? What was the— You know, it's funny. I came to the study— we're going to talk about that. Yeah. I came to the study of tech through the study of politics. Mm-hmm. I actually was a graduate student writing dissertation. I was like, I'm going to write about the Eisenhower administration. Mm-hmm. So, And I wasn't thinking about— You literally said that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. I was— <laughs> You're Hello. always looking red. <laughs> I love Dwight. I love it. Uh, Dwight. No, That's a good uh, name. Why is there anybody named Dwight anymore? I know. I'm sure there's a Dwight out there listening. I know. Yeah. I know one. But go ahead. Move <laughs> along. So, uh, so I wanted to and, – and then once you start looking at the 50s and the U.S. economy of the 50s, mm-hmm. you realize the Cold War is right in the middle of it. It's transforming everything. It's transforming. It's pushing people across the country, mm-hmm. building industry. And so that's what that project grew out of. My second book was about – presidential elections. It went back to high politics. So I've mm-hmm. kind of I've kind of ping-ponged back and forth between writing about presidents, writing about Washington, D.C., and then writing about Silicon Valley. And so right. in this book, it's right. a history of the valley, but it is very much, you know, what I wanted to do was read in the history of tech and the and political history and show how they're intertwined. Absolutely. I mean, there's no way to put it. And even today, uh, yeah, I want to get into your first book because the Cold War to me is was lost by Russia and now is being won by Russia in the new technology. We'll get to that in a mm-hmm. second. So, 
and your other book was? It was called Pivotal Tuesdays. It was about presidential elections. I started with 1912, Teddy Roosevelt, I, you know, which is coming, coming back in style again mm-hmm. now, yeah. um, and uh, going all the way through the 20th century and ending with the election of 92, which happened to be a campaign that I worked on. That was oh. the be- beginning of my career. Which, who did you work for? I worked for Bill Clinton. Oh, wow. Okay. I graduated from college and joined a campaign. Joined and a campaign. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Good for you. So you're, But you're a history professor at the University of Washington, which is where Microsoft is, Amazon. You're sort of right, even though people think of Silicon Valley, as the, and this book is about Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. But you got Jeff Bezos on the cover there. Mm-hmm. And, there. And, Bill, Gates and Bill Gates is, Gates is on there, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so you teach the intersection between the two. I do. I teach uh, about 20th century America and now 21st century America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've always been interested in the intersection of politics and business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got interested in that when I was here working in Washington 25 years ago, right. um, working on economic policy and seeing how much the two interplayed and how often they were considered to be completely separate realms. And certainly in the, in the case of tech, there is this interrelationship. It isn't, it isn't the answer—the the, the answer isn't, oh, the government built it all. Like, mm-hmm. stop thinking you built it by yourself. Yeah. It's actually the government had this catalytic effect, and it allowed for this amazing entrepreneurship. Well, talk about that meme, because that's the—they said, you know, that's what—I was just on a panel this morning at the Council on Foreign Relations about a new report they put out. Guess what? We need to catch up. Surprise, surprise. But they were talking about, you know, the government built, and they had in the book, they had a group of things the government built, from whether it's GPS or Tang or or the Internet, which was, you know, we all like the Internet. Thank you, government. Yeah. But talk about that we bit, this idea of of that, because it was it was, it was was definitely started by, I guess, Vandiver Bush would be the beginning yeah, of that yeah. idea of science, basic research being done to help technology. That's right. And, you know, look, the st- but from the very beginning, when you look back to World War II mm-hmm. and the OSRD that Bush put together, mm-hmm. that was a very decentralized, networked type of system. Mm-hmm. He was using academics and academic labs to create this network of research. It wasn't a whole bunch of government labs. Yes, there were a lot of right. government labs. Right. And look, and when you put it in the political context of the 40s and 50s, this was, you know, McCarthy era, right? Mm-hmm. Dwight Eisenhower is not going to be building giant, you know, in, in, keeping all R&D in, under government control. Mm-hmm. creates this very very decentralized network where you're using private and public research universities, private defense contractors mm-hmm. as the way to get the the goals, the the nation's goals achieved. Mm-hmm. And why was that? Was it, is it for protect? What, what was the reason? Well, it's you know it's the American way. First, first of all, you know if you're if you're fighting uh, Soviet socialism, the last thing you want to do is create some giant government <laughs> centralized right. government right. scheme. Right. Um, but it also is the you know it's the nature of American federalism, the nature of American politics. But the thing that it did was it threw an immense amount of money in the direction of science and technology, mm-hmm. not really with the intent of hey we're going to build this industry or we're going right. to build a science city in Palo Alto, mm-hmm. but it had that outcome. That would be um, a better name for Palo Alto, Science City. Science City. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Silicon Valley. How about that? That's a good name. <laughs> well, that was named by who was it? Was uh, that was Don Hoff? That was yeah, a journalist. Right. Yes, it was a yeah. journalist. Well, right. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah, but, yeah. but it was indirect, and so what it did is it allowed it kind of created this platform. You know, the government is it's both sponsoring R and D. It's this customer. It's buying sure. the mainframe computers. It's buying the transistors. In the 1960s, is buying the integrated circuits mm-hmm. pr- produced by companies like Fairchild Semiconductor, these legendary early startups. Sure. You know the, that it is kind of giving these this industry its like, taking it off the launching pad, literally. Right. right. And so what you know that was way before that. People think it's the internet only, but it was way before that they were doing this. This idea, and a lot of people move between and among the government and 
intelligence and other areas. Yeah, they mo- moved between and among. And they also moved across place. You know, this is a story about the Valley, but it's also a story about Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the, in the early decades, there was this real symbiotic relationship between the Valley and Boston. People moving back and forth between MIT and Stanford, for example, right. a lot of collaboration, flows of money. Mitch was there. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, Mitch was there. And so, and then more more recently, I think that's a story of Seattle and San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, that, that they have this really, you know, th- there's a lot of back and forth in mm-hmm. terms of flows of venture capital, flows of talent. And that, you know, rather than thinking of, oh, you have these tech regions and they're all competing for the prize, sure. right. it's actually more of a network. So there is there been a coalescing, just the way Hollywood has a coalescing of the film industry around Silicon Valley. Talk a little bit about the early history and what you thought was the key Moments. Yeah. So, look, Santa Clara Valley was mm-hmm. was just another agricultural valley in California. Right. You know, when we the know. New York Times apricots. write about it, yeah, apricots, apricots prunes, prunes. You know, um, there was you know th- that was the, what it was. But it had two. Th- By it the had way, one. There's a lot of prunes and apricots still there. There are. That's there true. are that's a little, true. little lower. <laughs> they're just not quite as. <laughs> they're hard harder no, to find. There's a lot down south. South yeah. of San yeah. Jose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're the, delicious. And, but the fact that it was agricultural was mm-hmm. one of his advantages because it made it really easy to redevelop it really fast mm-hmm. into office parks. And that's, right. you know, real estate is always part of the story of any history. Mm-hmm. But what sets the Valley apart is first, Stanford is there. It's opened in 1890. You know, by the, you know, 40, half, half a century on, it has a decent reputation, but it's not the Harvard of the West. No, it's not at all. It was at all. the farm, actually. It was the farm. And, right. you know, this is a great example of how you have macroeconomic forces and you have individuals who kind of seize opportunity. There's a guy named Fred Turman, who's the dean of engineering. He's a born and bred Palo Alto kid. He's a professor there, becomes dean, becomes provost. And he realizes that after World War II, there's going to be this whole new federal investment in science and research and, te- and engineering, and Stanford should get a piece of it. Mm-hmm. So what Terman and the leaders of Stanford do is they completely reinvent the curriculum at Stanford. Mm-hmm. They do something that a public university like my university, University of Washington mm-hmm. or Berkeley, can't do because they're kind of serving the state. They built up physics. They built up engineering. They created all these programs that were cooperative programs with industry. Stanford was just completely operating in a completely different fashion than any other college right, and university. Right, they made graduates who could make the thing. Exactly. Yeah. They they thought, they were like, okay, silicon semiconductor fabrication, we are going to make a program that puts out guys that can do that. Mm-hmm. And so the importance of Stanford, I think, cannot be underscored. Now, Berkeley is there, obviously, yeah. and there's a lot of going yeah. on at Berkeley, but yeah. the idea of Stanford is kind of like a, almost like a farm, speaking of farm, farm team for what would happen next, including in the internet era, but before that, I don't think people realize. Now, there were big schools like California. California Polytechnic. There's a bunch of others, MIT, obviously, um, and several others uh, happening. But this university in this place, right, because you see everything growing up around it is critical. It really is. And and we often think of universities' economic impact as as having to do with tech transfer, you know, Mm -hmm. that something is invented in a lab and it's commercialized. And certainly that's part of the story, particularly on the biotech side. But really what Stanford did, it was the people factory. It was Mm -hmm. from Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard back in the Mm -hmm. 30s all the way through to this decade, you know, generation after generation, it's pumping out graduates and they're, yeah, the farm team for the farm. And and it's set up in a way that it made both made it easy for both students and faculty to move back and forth between industry and academia. Mm-hmm. And for faculty to, you know, earn some money on the side to to sort of spend some time in industry and then come back in and seeding knowledge back and forth. Now, this is, you know, this is not something that was received well. <laughs> there were plenty of humanities professors at Stanford yeah. who thought this was pretty a horrifying idea. They were. <laughs> and uh, but and, and other universities, including 
including the Ivies, were like, oh, my God, you know, what are you doing? And so this is one of the things. So many other places have tried to be silicon somethings, right? And they're like, oh, right. we need to—if we have a college and university, we're going to, you know, yeah. check that box. Right. They don't have Stanford. Um, right. Stanford also had real estate. It had mm-hmm. 9,000 acres around—it the far- had the farm, mm-hmm. and it couldn't sell any of the land— but mm-hmm. it could redevelop it. So part of it was redeveloped into the Stanford Research Park, which mm-hmm. is where HP is still headquartered to this day. Mm-hmm. It's where, briefly, Theranos was. Um, mm-hmm. it, but it's still, you know, right adjacent to campus. And so creating this this relationship between academia and industry was a really novel thing in the 50s. So you have that part, first the Stanford, then you have the startups themselves. Yep. Which are that that want to locate in in and around that area. In and around. Well, first it w- wasn't startups. Mm-hmm. It was the branches of big companies that were head- headquartered elsewhere, like electronics Xerox companies. Car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, one other significant catalyst was Lockheed. So Lockheed's based in Southern California. They located their missiles and space division in Sunnyvale in 1954-55. Mm-hmm. That was the biggest employer in the mm-hmm. valley through the late 80s. Yep. And it's largely unknown because it was so top secret. No one could talk about what they did. You know, right. all the guys on the commercial side are like, look what I did. I'm building. You know, changing the world, and the right. Lockheed guys are like, I can't tell you. It's, can't tell I would you have to kill doing. you. <laughs> and they, so is Lockheed, have, how many people do they have at one point? Oh, God. Um, I mean, tens of thousands. Right. At, 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 you know, in the mid-'80s, they had four times as many employees as Apple mm-hmm. in the Valley. Which people don't think of They don't think of, Because yeah. they think of Boeing up in Seattle, yeah. obviously, yeah. And, uh, and Lockheed down in Los yeah. Angeles. But what Lockheed was doing, I mean, this is what the Valley was doing. This is where I think its regional advantage kind of sets it mm-hmm. apart from L.A. and Seattle. So L.A. and Seattle are building big. They're building mm-hmm. aer- airplanes, big mm-hmm. stuff. The Valley is building small from the start. They're building small electronics, transistorized electronics, mm-hmm. and communication devices. And software. And so, Yeah, and microwave radar. So this, you know, you see this connective tissue of technology. As computers get miniaturized mm-hmm. and as the Internet and connecting computers becomes more important, the things that the, the knowledge that Silicon Valley does, a specialty, the specialization, becomes more and more central to the entire tech industry. Because mm-hmm. look, in the 50s and 60s, when you thought computers, you thought IBM mainframes. Like, mm-hmm. they were it. Which was in our monk, New York. Yes, exactly. Monk, right? Yeah, it was an East Coast industry. And one of the reasons many think it had problems yeah. because it wasn't part yeah. of this triangle. Now, the third area of the golden triangle, I think you call it, in, in Silic- the show Silicon Valley, uh, which we can talk about later, we call it the conjoined triangles <laughs> of show. success. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in this episode the last season. I'm in the last season twice, I think. Um, but it's a really funny episode that we just taped. Um, there is the VCs. Yeah. The money. Yes. So talk a little bit about that because that's a critical part of the they history. They are a critical part of the history. And so the VCs are, are big characters in my story from the mm-hmm. beginning to the end. And a lot of the VCs, you know, they start as in industry. They're engineers. Mm-hmm. They're the kind of Korea generation guys who come out in the 50s and they sure. work for companies like Sylvania. Mm-hmm. And then they, um, by the late 60s and early 70s, they're getting into venture capital. They're becoming venture capitalists themselves. Mm-hmm. And this, it creates this you know, virtuous cycle where you have managerial operational expertise as well as technical expertise that's then going into, you know, the people who are deciding sure. who the next next winners are going to be. VCs are, you know, VCs provide money and mentorship. And what I, you know, I, I kind of, my analogy in the book is it's like a Galapagos. It's kind mm-hmm. of developing separate from the rest of the, the financial capital of New York and the political capital of Washington, D.C. Out in California, no one's really paying attention for a long time. Right. Silicon Valley appears in scarecrow quotes in 
in papers like the Post and the Times until the early 80s. Scare kind of like, quotes, what do you mean? Meaning like quotation marks, like yeah. so-called Silicon Valley. So-called, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like no one knows what it is. Yeah, it's interesting that yeah. they didn't need, that once they didn't need the capital, they could do this. And then yeah. obviously they stayed way out of politics for a longer they time. They stayed, well, yes and no. Yeah. Like there's sort of this. I meant they, overt politics. Overt politics, yeah. yeah. And they're also, you know, very overtly saying, I don't care what these guys do in Washington. Like that's right. so orthogonal to what we're doing. Sure. But meanwhile, they're lo- coming, coming and lobbying for Lowered capital gains tax rates and for, right. um, for you know special and very strong government benefits. relations with the internet with everything. Yeah. A lot of what's being created by the government is then taken and used in commercially moved to commercial. Yes, but the internet's a great example mm-hmm. of this kind of. The, the way in which a government program was designed with flexibility mm-hmm. to turn Explain into this that. crazy Explain thing. That. So, look, the Internet, it, in its initial, it, yes, it was a product of DARPA. It was a product of the Pentagon. It was a mm-hmm. research product. It was. It had, like anything that was funded, had a, some you know relationship to What's the Cold the full, War. the whole funding for that project? Do you know? The I mean, whole f- for the Internet. Oh, for the Internet. Well, it's a project of yeah, DARPA in right. the late, late 60s. It starts very small. And what it is, it is a communications network for academic labs that have other DARPA money mm-hmm. so that their powerful computers can communicate with one right. another. Right. And that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And so, but the designers it was a nuclear it, thing, but it wasn't. No, it was, it was I mean. It was, that too. It's there. Yeah, but really, the guys, I mean, what yes, made it, was for, it, what it was, it was for, used for. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bunch of professors and graduate mm-hmm. students goofing off. Well, not quite goofing off. That's why off. there were, they were notes doing, in Boston. In Silicon Valley yeah. and Washington. And why there was no central node. I mean, think mm-hmm. about if the Pentagon, if the military had really been in charge of designing it, you would have had like a central command center, right? And right. hierarchy. Right. And it's totally non-hierarchical. Somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. stays that way. Right. Yeah. Right. And and it's it's a communications network. And But up until the early 90s, only people who were getting money from the government, from the military, could play on this network. Mm-hmm. You know, the academic. And, and look, there's a lot that was mostly academic. It was some also some military researchers. And it's the beginning of the 90s when the it opens up to commercial activity. First, right. you can have dot-com domains, which really couldn't do anything except exist. And then, critically, in the early Clinton years, it opens up to, you can buy and sell. You can use it for commercial activity. Commercial activity and then is a critical off to the races. And Al Gore was very inter- integral he, to it. He was integral to it. <laughs> People he always was. give him a hard for Al. They do. He didn't invent it, but he certainly, without yeah. him, he was very critical. Yeah. I remember interviewing him at the time yeah. uh, about that, and he was the one of the only... Uh, politicians who really understood, or, or at least grokked the idea of it better yeah. than most. Yeah, he was, I mean, he, to his credit, like Al Gore and Newt Gingrich were two of the only too. people in the 80s 100%. who were paying any attention. And, right. And, and that was really consequential. They had diff- different takeaways from it. Sure. But really important. Yeah, they were hanging out with computer scientists and asking Yeah, it was interesting. Was Before on. Newt became this, Newt, I used to hang around with Newt Gingrich. Yeah. This is my dark secret. And he was, he was fascinating. I went on a whole, I went on a tour of the country talking about the internet with Newt Gingrich, Steve Case, Jim Barksdale. And we went all around the country talking awesome. it up at colleges, and it was, like, weird. That when was that? I, sometime in that period, yeah, like the yeah. 90s, like, really That's pushing right. it. Probably after new loss, but yeah. it, I, I got to tell you, it, he was a lot of fun. That yeah. New Rich. Not anymore so much. But <laughs> in any case, new, what happened to you? Anyway, he was very ahead of it. So was Gore. There were a couple of uh, Senator Wyden. He yep. was a congressman yep. at Ed the Markey, time. Markey. Who Ed was Markey. congressman then and um, the senator. Patrick Leahy and stuff like that. There were a lot here. When we get back, we're going to talk more about what happened then. And on your book, you have I know you have on the other side, on the regular book cover, there's women on the other. But lots of guys. Lots of lots guys. Lots of white guys. Lots of white They're guys. They're all the ones. Steve Jobs, Mark 
Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Sergey Brin, Jeff Bezos, John Doerr. Wait, who's that? That's uh, uh, that's uh, uh, Andy Grove. Andy Grove. Oh, God, really? Yeah, 70s Andy Grove Whoa. with a stash. Oh, yeah, sure. And then right here. <laughs> and that's Fred Terman. Fred Terman. Okay, great. Um, we'll talk about those characters and more when we get back with Margaret O'Mara. She's a history professor at the University of Washington and the author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Startups. You don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, so their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We're here with Margaret O'Mara. She is an author of a new book. She's a history professor at the University of Washington, but she wrote a book called The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. We talked a little bit about the history of where you got. A lot of the early history, of course, was about semiconductors, about Hewlett-Packard, mm-hmm. sort of the guts and computers themselves, the creation of uh, mainframes, which moved to uh, eventually to laptops and you know, moved through the through the period um, and distributed computing and the, the Ethernet and things and lots of characters. Each of them was a step towards getting to the commercialization of the Internet that we know now. And it's it's not largely the same, but it's similar to the way that it was envisioned. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that early history. Yeah. Because, by the way, Mark Zuckerberg didn't come along for a long time. Not for a long time. I was around for a long time before he showed up. He's in the book, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the and, and, you know, showing, trying to put in the covers of one book all the way from the 1940s to, mm-hmm. you know, 2019 was, right. uh, you know, but I really wanted to show that connection. And mm-hmm. there's a technological connection. So, the Valley built small stuff from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, it is uh, the silicon semiconductor industry begins there in the mid-50s with William Shockley, who was the yes. co-inventor of the transistor. Absolutely. He's originally from Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. He comes back, persuaded in part by Stanford's Fred Terman, who was a very persuasive guy. Fred Terman's a great example of someone who's a people person who kind yeah. of brought Who you don't know in. as much about. You don't. He's a really Shockley, important Shockley, for figure. sure. Shockley, yes. Shockley's a, you know, we could do a whole other podcast about yeah. William Shockley, but right. among his other— faults. He was a terrible boss. Mm-hmm. So he recruited, He no one from Bell Labs would come out and work with mm-hmm. him. Um, that should have been a warning sign. But he recruited eight super smart, great engineers from elsewhere to come work for Among him in his startup. 
Hewlett and Packard. Uh, no, Hewlett and Packard well, were, were they, they were I'm sorry. from Noise and Noise, Noise and Moore. Yeah, okay. Bob Noise and, and and Kleiner. Right. And you know, so right. so this group of eight guys last on the you know in less than a year they're like get us out of here. Right. So they cook up with a junior banker in New York named Arthur Rock, mm-hmm. who later becomes Arthur legendary <laughs> venture later capitalist. Rock. Yes. Right. And uh, who figures out there's this kind of young son of <laughs> this young rich guy who's got mm-hmm. more money than he knows what to do with. And mm-hmm. funnily enough, that came from a sale of IBM stock. Mm-hmm. That, that, and so this guy, Sherman, Sherman Fairchild, finances this company that becomes Fairchild Semiconductor, mm-hmm. which is the legendary granddaddy of all mm-hmm. um, Valley startups. Part of the, the, the Fairchild story, this intersects with this Cold War space race story that, mm-hmm. and, and shows a, a, you know, how companies that weren't defense contractors yet had a, yes. a big role. So Fairchild incorporates two weeks before Sputnik shoots mm-hmm. into space and They're sets everyone's the, hair yeah. on fire, right? right? The space rates goes into overdrive. All this money is pouring out of Washington for missiles and rocket technology. What do you need to send a man to the moon? You need really, really light, powerful electronics. So for the semiconductors and particularly the integrated circuit that's mm-hmm. developed at, at Fairchild and other places is, you know, the Apollo program is their biggest customer. Mm-hmm. They, they buy all these chips mm-hmm. and companies, these semiconductor companies now have, are able to scale up drive down the price. Now there's a commercial market because enterprise customers can afford these things. And so off to the races. So it creates this foundation for a super entrepreneurial, highly competitive, notoriously competitive industry, which is sort of the culture of the semiconductor industry still has its imprint on, you know, you can see it. (laughs) These these companies now. Uh, But that's where it all starts. So you go from there, go integrated circuits, then the next decade you have to get the microprocessor, the Mm -hmm. computer on the chip. And once you have a computer on a chip, you can build a box around it, and you got a desktop computer. Right. So once you, with the microprocessor, that's when the homebrewers, the guys, that's the right. personal the computer Apple. guys, yeah, come out of that. Jobs, and yeah, Wozniak. Yep. And so personal computers. Then you have workstations, more powerful desktop computers. You know, mm-hmm. Sun Microsystems at Al. And then just as and you can't leave out Hewlett Packard. And you, oh yeah, and they're sort of from 1939 on. Well, they you know they're sort of they're a kind of different breed. They're not mm-hmm. doing computers. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not transistorized. They're they're doing instrumentation. They come into computers later, mm-hmm. and they're you know they're kind of a little late to the party, but they come. They're a big. They're a big part of the party, and they are too. Hewlett Packard is really important. Dave Packard is a really important person in the political history of Silicon Valley. He's a Republican activist. He was um, Richard Nixon's deputy secretary of defense. Mm-hmm. You know, an example of these people that you think don't yeah. have anything to do with Washington right. are very connected they have, in. 100%. Uh, and Hewlett Packard's the the HP way, the culture, this mm-hmm. idea that you have a non-hierarchical org, allegedly, that everyone's walking around in their shirt sleeves or no corner offices. It's more... What do you, it set what, a tone. Everyone has their miss. Everybody yeah. has their miss and stories. Yeah, and it was a great place to work. They were, you know, people stuck around HP because it was great, and there was a lot mm-hmm. of upside. And it, you know, it was a, um, it didn't last. It's mm-hmm. sort of more later stage HP kind of lost that. Margaret, none of them last. <laughs> I know. Just FYI, know. doesn't. <laughs> Which I know. is great. Yeah, Which is great. That's, That's what my people, favorite part. Of when people ask me what's gonna, you know, what are we gonna do about X, yeah. Y, or Z, I'm like, well. Not every company is going to be around. Right, ever. exactly. So begat, begat, begat. You know, begat, begat, and Microsoft, and and Microsoft. Well, Microsoft comes in kind of like you know as the um, first as the unruly guest in the party. You know, mm-hmm. you have these homebrewers who it was all about hardware it in was. the valley. That's right. And software was the thing you 
gave away for free. Like that was kind of the the you know the paint job on the car. It was right. not something. It was not its own thing. Right. So when Bill, you know, but but Gates and Allen start a business that's building and you know, operating system software for the for these new micro what were then called microcomputers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have the famous homebrew computer club, which is the Silicon Valley, the guys meeting first in a they garage. Make them and then, wood. They even yeah. make money. What, they, what they, was interesting about it is they didn't quite realize that software was going to eat everything. They did as, not. As Mark Andreessen says. They did not. Yeah. Right. And, I mean, so, look, look, software programming at the beginning was considered to be this rote clerical task. That's why it was all women who were mm-hmm. computer programmers in the 40s and 50s. And, and once— it was realized, oh, this is actually, this is what makes the magic happen. It's not just mm-hmm. building a cool machine. Like, mm-hmm. the machine's not going to work unless it's programmed right. Um, that's when it becomes a standalone right. thing. That's and a really good point about yeah. women. Yes. So talk about that a little bit because, you know, these are all guys and large, all white guys on your thing. Yep. You, in, your, in your the main book, I don't have your, I have the uncorrected producer. Yeah. But, well, um, I'll tell you, we were going to have a lot of women on the back covers, this mm-hmm. sort of funny doppelganger. Mm-hmm. And then um, <laughs> and then I got a lot of nice blurbs from people, so we decided to. <laughs> so all right, but talk about these three women, because women were very critical um, to the early. They were really critical. And, um, you know, what I tried to do in the book was and Not tell, just Grace Hopper. And, no. You know, and, no. and uh, Ada Lovelace, but uh, yeah. that's been written about quite a bit. Yeah, they're the, yeah, they're the, the, the people, but they're also in addition to those people, they mm-hmm. were there were a, a, you know armies of other other people. One of the people that I talk about, I, there are a few characters I trace with the whole book who are kind mm-hmm. of the hidden or not so hidden figures. That, right. And and one of them is a woman named Anne Hardy, who is a who is a programmer, software engineer, Silicon Valley technologist, and she um, you know wants to major in science and engineering and math and in college is going to Pomona. The, they mm-hmm. won't let her do it because you know women can't do that. She majors in mm-hmm. phys ed instead. <laughs> She gets an entry-level job at IBM as a programmer in the mid-50s in New York, works her way up to be a senior manager, um, quits when she realizes all the men she's supervising make more than she does, tries to go to business school. Harvard Business School doesn't admit, admit women. There are all these kind of moments where you see mm-hmm. where, you know, look, the post-war period was this amazing cornucopia of opportunity for white men who were born in the United States, you know, at this coming up at this moment. You have mm-hmm. a lot of middle-class very people from very modest backgrounds mm-hmm. that become Silicon Valley moguls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His dad didn't finish high school. Yeah, they're just very poor background. But for the women, they're you know they of similar maybe from similar economic circumstances. They are not given the educational opportunities, and oftentimes they learn the technology on the job. Anne Hardy's a great ex- example. She becomes she's she's really good. Um, she shows up in the by the middle of the of the 60s, she's living in Palo Alto. There's this startup called Timeshare. So timesharing industry. This was like the internet before the internet. It's very very little mm-hmm. has been written about it, but really important. It's these when we had mainframes and mini mini computers, minis that were not mini at all, the size of a refrigerator. Yeah, they're really expensive. These were networks via phone lines where you could have teletype machines and terminals in your own house, and you could access computer power and do programming remotely. And so, Timeshare was this startup in Palo Alto that was doing timesharing. And the guys who started it up, they were from Lockheed. They were hardware guys. They got a mini computer. It didn't occur to them that they needed to have an operating system on it. Like again, hard where it was just so, like, who cares? Um, And so they needed an operating system, and and Anne shows up and says, well, I can build it for you. They're like, okay, that's fine. And so she does, and it's the operating system that basically builds the business. And later her boss comes to her and says, you know, if I had known that this OS was so important to our company, I never would have hired a woman to do it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like the idea that women could be technology, technical women, that they were interested in technology. So why does that happen? I mean, you could go back for, because there were a lot of women in the early days. Obviously, we've all seen hidden figures. We've all seen lots of different things. And so many of these things depend on programmers, like actual people at the machines. Yeah. 
happened? Where did the really misogyny creep in? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's just misogyny is always creeps in. It's the thing that Silicon Valley's strength is also its greatest weakness, which Mm -hmm. is the network. Right. And it has to, and I'd say my answer to that is follow the money. So think about these networks of venture capital where you have people who are in a company that either hits or, and this is, I'm talking from the 50s forward, you either have a big hit personally where you're personally enriched or you're in a mm-hmm. company that's super successful. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, I'm an alumni of X. Right. You turn that into a, become a, a venture capital career. You're now looking out for the next generation. VC is very both the grade A man and the grade A idea, as mm-hmm. some of the early venture capitalists would, would say. You're mm-hmm. looking for the person. You're investing in the person. Right. They say that still. Yeah. And you're also investing in people you know. And this is, again, Silicon Valley's magic. It's like, you know what? I worked with that guy at this former company. He's mm-hmm. really good. I'm going to bring him yeah. on to my team. Yeah. Or I'm going to invest in this guy. He's from Stanford's you know, right. graduate program. So the circle is very small. So no, I never encountered a moment where the, you know, they put up the sign saying no girls allowed on the outside mm-hmm. of the boardroom. But when you're just looking, when you're hiring um, your workforce through em- existing employee recommendations, when you're um, pulling people for that you worked before, when you're hiring people from known quantity programs like MIT and Stanford, then your circle becomes shrunk. And it works. And it works. And it works. That's part, I mean, that, I think, is why it's so hard right. to unwind and slow to change. But here's what I'm seeing. So people are like, hey, why? why well, you, you don't know, know what didn't work, right? Because you don't you, you, know. That's the thing. Is that, That's what I always say. Is like, well, it works. I'm like, well, if there's a Marsha Zuckerberg versus a Mark Zuckerberg, maybe. Then I'm like, but you don't know what you missed, do you? You don't know. And mm-hmm. there's look, there's a fear factor. Like, the, mm-hmm. the, I mean— the Valley and, and, and Tech VC sort of presents itself as like risk-taking, audacious. Mm-hmm. But no, they're, they're making bis- high-stakes business decisions. There's a very, you know, mm-hmm. small hit rate. And you want to figure out the right leadership, right product market fit. You're figuring out, mm-hmm. you know, you're trying to get some predictive value about, okay, is this going to work? Right. And so having validation from other people whose judgment you trust, having validation in the form of, Okay, this person in a hoodie who's kind of asocial reminds me of the people who have <laughs> successfully built companies before. And so on and on. But you know what's changing now is that in the last 15 years, there have been a critical mass of women who've made their own money, mm-hmm. who've made, you know, there've been so, there's been so many, so many fortunes built mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley just since the turn of the 21st century, that you're starting to get sort of sort the of numbers do not move, but it's slow. Way. I know it's slow, but it's it took 75 years for it to get this way. It's right. going to take a while right. for it to right. Unwind. All right, so here we are. We have these companies coming up. Obviously, software becomes critical. The venture, the, everything's there with Stanford, with the venture capital, with these startups happening. When you're saying the remaking of America, what do you mean by that from your perspective? Well, when I go back to UW and I teach, I teach you know history of the presidency and political history, and mm-hmm. I you know write a, a history textbook, and and in the way that history is taught is kind of here we have presidents and wars and blah blah blah, and then off to the side, oh these crazy long haired techies right. with their right. sparkly computers, right. and actually the tech history is a product of political history, both small p and big P, right, mm-hmm. formal politics, but also, and social history. These things are interconnected. And in turn, tech history has influenced political history. That's an easier case to make now in 2019 sure, than it we'll was. Sure, we'll talk about that next, in the next <laughs> It was five, five years ago. But, you know, Silicon Valley remade America in part, you know, one of the reasons that I think that it it flew so high and became such such a golden industry that mm-hmm. um, was that thing, other things were falling apart. I mean, think about the 70s. Right. Vietnam, Watergate, stagflation, 
hard hats out of work, Exit factories clothing, you know, closing, you know, ah. And then out there you've got Steve Jobs. Right. And you've got these new types of business leaders. And for politicians of both parties, both the Republican Party, which is becoming more, sort of, you know, always business-friendly conservative, but but particularly a Californian Ronald Reagan who really mm-hmm. celebrates this entrepreneurial capital, mm-hmm. capitalism, and Democrats that are trying to figure out their next act post George McGovern, you know, like the, right. the, we're now the Democratic Party is now kind of becoming more liberal, becoming more progressive. It's this is after a forty year period where it's been trying to move to the center, center right, um, to recapture Clinton. Yeah, to Clinton. So mm-hmm. you know, Clinton and Gore are really important figures in understanding this marriage between modern politics and modern Silicon Valley. Right. And so as it, it grew up, the money gets larger. And in the 90s, they start going public, the, mm-hmm. and these fortunes are made. And it's mm-hmm. not really—people don't realize Google didn't really get there until 99, 2000, 2001. It wasn't making money for a few no, years. No, <laughs> no, but 98, I think it's somewhere well, in there. it starts in 98, and it's really making money by sort of 2000, 2001. Right. Um, but I'm saying it didn't—people can't—you you keep thinking of these, including Amazon. I met Jeff Bezos in the, yeah. In the 90s. Yeah. Um, Mark Andreessen in the 90s. In the mid '90s, I guess, um, very small companies. Mm-hmm. So yes. talk about that. The, the, well, actually, you know, we'll wait when we get back, and then I want to talk about the impact because I think the internet. What has happened is Silicon Valley is now not just a place; it's something else. Anyway, we're talking to Margaret O'Mara, whose new book is called "The Code: Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America." We'll be back after this break. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. We're here with Margaret O'Mara. She's a history professor at the University of Washington, UW, and the author of The Code, Silicon Valley, and the Remaking of America. So, you know, now we move into this new era. Now, Microsoft had dominated quite a lot of the software era, pretty mm-hmm. much completely. And, yeah. of course, got slapped back by the government. So yes. Talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah. Which led the way for Google and other and Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, it's sort of happening in a, in a coterminous fashion. Yeah, the late the, the 90s and the late 90s are obviously very consequential. They're consequential in terms of lawmaking, the rules of the road that are being mm-hmm. developed in Washington, D.C. around the Internet and how it's going to be regulated or not. Not. <laughs> and, uh, and also the Microsoft antitrust trial, which is kind of the political education of the tech industry, I think, yeah. in a different way. You know, before the trial, Microsoft's Washington office consisted of one guy basically working out of the back of his Jeep. Like, What's his name? Uh, 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 that guy. I that guy, him. yeah. Well, actually, I, was, I had lunch with Bill Gates back then and at, at the Washington Post when I worked there, and he goes, we got one guy who's up in the car. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, you need more. You need— I know. We're going to need some a bigger boat is what yeah. I kept thinking. Yes. Like, you're going to need a bigger boat, Bill. And uh, they, they realized that. Yeah, I always said—I I think I sent him at the time. I said, you know, this, is a, this seems to be a town full of ex-student body vice presidents with subpoena power. So it seems a little <laughs> disturbing to me, like, what yeah. that you're not paying attention. But yeah. you're right. It, it, the politics completely intersected. Yeah. And, and it already and, had experience with IBM and with AT&T and everything else. Yeah. But, you know, look, the, the Microsoft, you know, what brought the action against Microsoft, being the instigator, the kind of chicken hawk in this, right. was Netscape. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the story that I tell in the book is, I mean, this is very much Silicon Valley. It's the Silicon Valley v- versus Microsoft sure. battle that's been playing out the whole 90s, where Netscape and its lawyers at Wilson Sonsini and their and its venture capitalists like, you know, John Doerr John Doerr. And, uh, mm-hmm. are kind of going to the Department of Justice, going to the state AGs, going to anyone who will listen and being like, hey, Microsoft is not playing fair. Mm-hmm. And so really kind of pushing this to the forefront of, and, and look, I, you know, who knows what, what might have happened otherwise. The, the Clinton administration was super tech-friendly, was courting, you know, both Seattle and Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. But this was definitely kind of an anti-competitive action. What, what comes out of that, of course, Microsoft is ultimately not broken up because no. it's, you know, but it is, you know, a curbed um, and becomes more— Slowed them down. It slowed them down. Now, would—you know, did this make way for Google? Uh, maybe yes, maybe no. Look, Google is, you know, so interesting. It's it's kind of already been anointed the next golden child of the Valley mm-hmm. by the late 90s where you get—they they get this blockbuster— first round of venture capital funding from, from, from Sequoia, Sequoia and, Kleiner. and Kleiner. I wrote that story for the yeah. Wall Street Journal. I mean, $25 million for a couple yep. of grad students And it was the Stanford. two venture firms which had never cooperated, yes. I think, I believe. Or they, yeah. they seldom did. Yeah. I mean, sure. it's extraordinary how those guys they were. <laughs> managed they went to, to that garage. It. Yeah. With Susan Wojcicki's yeah. garage, which was interesting. Um, but they, but, but it created a whole new kind of explosion, I think. Google probably is the company. There was a it lot is. around and a lot of different things. And then there was a very fallow period, obviously, in the two, at, the, at the turn of the at century. The of the but century. Google did emerge from that very powerfully. Very powerfully. And, and I, you know, I think of it as Silicon Valley 1.0 and 2.0 and mm-hmm. really the turning point being— you know, being the dot-com crash, but but even when Google went public in 2005, it was still a search company. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite Galaxy Brain Google yet. No. And and what happens after that is the arrival of companies that are platforms right. um, and that are becoming disruptive in realms far beyond computer hardware and software. You know, mm-hmm. back in the days of the chip makers, they're, they are incredibly competitive. They're being, you know, really nasty to each other. They're elbowing everyone out of the way. But they're just fighting with each other. And right. maybe they're fighting with Japanese chip makers, but it's mm-hmm. all in the mm-hmm. industry family. Now you have Uber taking on taxi commissions. You have, Facebook. you know, you have, yeah, you have other, you have, yes, you have domains of media and politics that are being disrupted by Silicon Valley-style disruption. Right. And people don't really, one, I think the key part would be the advent of the iPhone. 
yes. in 2007? Six. Six or seven. Six somewhere, or seven. Somewhere in yeah. there. Yeah. That changed every. That to yeah. me is, to, if I had to pick something, that would be the most important thing of, of the recent era. It was. It was. And it also cemented, if it needs needed cementing, the kind of legend of Steve Jobs mm-hmm. and the founder who— who, you know, also, you know, there are people who've taken notes, still taking notes in the Valley of, you know, here was a guy who was founded this company, was fired by the bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. Which is well known, yeah. And then comes back mm-hmm. and takes it to even higher levels of glory. I mm-hmm. think that some ousted CEOs might be thinking, oh, I can do this Right, sometime. yeah, they do, they do. Good <laughs> but, luck, Travis. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Yeah, the, the mobile era just changes everything. Mm-hmm. It just opens up this, and look— I, I love my – I'm attached to my phone. My mm-hmm. phone is attached to my hand like it is to everyone's. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a com- supercomputer in our pocket. It's an example of the extraordinary technological advancements that have mm-hmm. come out of this place and in a relatively short period of time. But it also has – you know, it shows that it's – I mean, think about the, the – 2006-7 was not too long ago. Right. You know, I mean, my daughter's in eighth grade. She was right. a toddler when the iPhone came right. out. Right, but one of the things that they did during this period is the idea that government wasn't critical to this mm. to this endeavor, that they were off to the races. They were creating these massive companies, Amazon, Facebook, Google, uh, off to the side, Netflix. Um, Apple sort of stayed consistent throughout as a hard, mm-hmm. largely a hardware company, really, yeah. with some software. In the beginning, it was seen sort of celebrated, what has happened? You know, even though it's recent history, is something switched? Yeah, something switched, and it switched in the time. Look, I, I started working on this book and, five and years intersect ago. with politics, really. Yes, heavily. with yeah. politics. When I started working on this book, and I was doing my first interviews for it in 2014, I was down, living down at, at Stanford on, on sabbatical, and I was, um, you know, it, it was it still changed the world time. You know, but, we're mm-hmm. all we're sure. all all up into the right, and I and had these want, conversations. They would see you. They would see you. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I would. Yeah, they would see me, and then they and they would also. I'd also sort of say something like, "Well, I'm going to look at the relationships between politics and tech," and at one point, someone's like, you know, can we just hold it right there and say, well, you know, there really isn't any story there because mm-hmm. the government had nothing to do with what we do. Mm-hmm. And if, that's part of the magic. That's mm-hmm. part of the thing that, you know, when you look at other geographies that have tried to build silicon somethings of their own and these big government programs, part of the thing, and I'm not to say not to say this is something that should be emulated. The reason the U.S. did all this then, which I think makes it hard to do moonshots now, mm-hmm. was because of the Cold War and because right. they were just shoving bucketfuls of money at all this mm-hmm. stuff and probably wasting a lot of money along the way. But they did it in a way that allowed, that kind of built the industry and allowed them to think they did it on their own. Sure. That allowed for this free movement of people and capital, that allowed for a lot of iteration, a lot of failure. And so it's distance. And then layer on top of that the messages that the media and politicians have given the valley in the world about its sort of, this is the emblem of free market Cowboy capitalism, like, mm-hmm. aren't they great? Like, Ronald Reagan's giving speeches about these guys in garages. They're mm-hmm. they're what American freedom is about. Like, the government had nothing to do with their success, you know. Bill Clinton does the same thing, you know, Republicans and Democrats. And then the media, you know, celebration, the magazine Please. covers, oh, yeah. you know. Think about all the I, – at one point, I had one of my research assistants. I was like, I just want to look at all the Time magazine – not to single out Time. Fortune but, was actually the yeah, one that was Fortune, the worst. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. And how these guys were portrayed, right? Yeah. You know, you have Mark Andreessen sitting on a throne. Trump, with the, the, the golden geek. I have that. I have that. That Time magazine yeah. cover. Yeah. I kept it because I was like, "This is iconic." At the time, yeah. I remember. You know, there was the guy. They were, they were on every cover, and they were selling. Yeah. And I remember saying to someone at the time, 
may have been Larry Page or someone. I said, enjoy it on the way up because you're going to get it going down. Well, that's like, it. I mean, that's – and we think about now. You know, I, I mean, part of – look, I, I'm a history professor. I think right. about the long, the long view. I mean, we're kind of in another progressive era, the era of Roosevelt and Wilson, mm-hmm. where similar things. You had these new industries that grew really, really fast. Mm-hmm. They Which became, at the time were trains and yeah, banks and, and yeah. Yeah, oil companies. Oil. I mean, yeah. indispensable to mm-hmm. American life but inescapable. Right, mm-hmm. and ordinary people touched by them. Like you're getting on a train, and the price of your ticket is fixed by some yeah. railroad magnate. Mm-hmm. The price of your shipping your grain from eastern Washington mm-hmm. back east to Chicago is fixed by someone far away. And these leader, these incredibly rich moguls, the John D. Rockefellers, the Andrew Carnegies. Well, you know, now we've, you know, no surprise that the tech leaders of the leaders of the Valley and the tech industry are experiencing the same fire now. It's this is what this is a, a readjustment is you know a similar conversation is is starting to happen. So is that readjustment fair? People think it's not in Silicon Valley. I think it's com- completely fair. I think it's normal and part of it. But there there is a feeling that this is going to uh, stop the the gravy train essentially, or that we're victims, or that we you know what I mean. And it's a, it it has so many similarities to Carnegie and. Rockefeller and everything else that you can have two thought. Well, it's very difficult for people to have two thoughts in their brain at the same time. You can be doing bad and also be doing good. Um, and yeah. I think Brad Smith actually from Microsoft, which is now sort of the model tech citizen in a weird way, if you think about it, was talking about this idea of tools and weapons that yeah. it's yep. for, for both. Does Silicon Valley have a sense of history? Do you think? Nope. Nope. <laughs> As we talk about that. That's like, why I wrote the book. Yeah, okay. Um, and, and look, the, one of the reasons and why I wrote the book to neither tear down Silicon Valley nor build it up, because that's really what the, you know, the, the books that have been out there, I mean, this is the book I wished existed 20 years ago mm-hmm. when I was a grad student, moving out to San Francisco for the first time and being like, what the what? You know, mm-hmm. uh, help me understand this whole industry. And, it, it, you know, it's neither—the pendulum has swung so violently from the rah-rah, change the world, mm-hmm. we're all—it's all good, to tear it all down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's going to swing back somewhere in the middle. And the story is somewhere in the middle. It mm-hmm. is, you know, tools and weapons. It is supercomputers in our pockets and, you know, having no friction in our, you know, in our ability to order up a gig right. economy service right. is right. damaging. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's happened—but the other thing is it's happened in the context of— a broader, you know, political moment sure. of polarization. Never been such an intersection of pulling back on government, the government's role in in American life, and mm-hmm. and not just in spending on R and D and the things mm-hmm. that people are calling for now, which is super important and mm-hmm. super important in terms of global right. competition. It's also kind of the basic stuff like social infrastructure, educational infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Look, think about the upward mobility of some of the I- iconic people of tech. Think about how Steve Jobs' dad did not graduate high school. He mm-hmm. was a machinist. He was a machinist working on laser technology in the valley. Like Mm -hmm. Steve Wozniak's dad was a Lockheed engineer. They are literally children of this post-war era of prosperity and Cold War spending and California spending a heck of a Mm -hmm. lot on public education, which it Mm -hmm. stopped doing after the tax cuts of Prop 13 in the late 70s. So again, when you kind of put this tech history, I think this is actually instructive, you know, the leaders of the technology industry don't only need to understand their own history because I think that helps them understand, you know, how they got to now, um, but also understand the political history and understand how they connect into each other because that's going to be the only way you figure out, okay, what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. You can't occupy this vacuum of that's adversarial sure. or it's just going to go away mm-hmm. or, you know, we ride this out. I think, you know, the criticism is going to die down. I think there are these 
look, these companies are so successful because they are providing a service. You know, I'm hitting right. that Prime button on my phone to right. order something from Amazon with Barbara, alarming you're regularity. You're a cheap date. I they am. get much more out of it than you do. <laughs> they do. Cheap they do. Date. I, you know, sometimes I think, what's well, my hometown bookstore? I live in Seattle. <laughs> yeah, well, there is one. There's quite a few. Um, but if you were looking at, like, the idea of no sense of history and, and things swimming back and forth, if you were to write this book in 50 years, what would be— Oh, the way you would look back at it, yeah, and where we are is it is it China? Guess what? This is the moment we let China take over the next yeah. internet era for and the next tech era. Really. Yeah, um, maybe maybe not. I mean, China, you know, China looked at Silicon Valley's history and it took notes. Yeah, and the massive spending, kind of public infrastructure spending, not mm-hmm. only on R and D and science education, which is doing a lot of, but it's also doing a lot of physical infrastructure, like building roads and making mm-hmm. things work. You know, Niels Bohr, uh, the atomic scientist who in 1939 said— uh, I know who that is now because yes. I just quizzed my son on oh. on his, uh, on his uh, I think it's his bio class. Oh, awesome. Very right. exciting. I totally forgot. Niels Bohr. Niels Bohr. Niels Bohr. Yeah. In, in, uh, in 1939 says, you know, when proposed the idea of the U.S. May, perhaps should build an atomic bomb, mm-hmm. said the only way you're going to do it is turn the whole country into a giant factory, which, of course, is that that's what the Manhattan Project did. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what China is— Doing right now. Here's the difference. Think you know, free movement of people and capital essential to right. Silicon Valley success. I agree. I think we can beat them by small innovation and, and get mm-hmm. rid of all these giant monopolistic type companies. You know, and a liberal. You know, being in a liberal democracy is it's, it's significant difference. Look and the difference between Russia, Sputnik was one thing, but guess who surpassed them by precisely? You know what I mean? But there was yeah. massive government spending. It just was massive. allowing the unlocking the the coordination between government and Silicon Valley or wherever tech is critically important. It's yeah. just how much you can do it from a sense point of view. You just can't. You just It doesn't happen no, that way. No. And, that, and I think that's a frustrating thing when people say, well, how do we build another one? What do we do now? You know, there. I mean, there are definitely some policy lessons. There's corporate strategy lessons to be mm-hmm. drawn from this history. Absolutely. But, so, you know, one of the things that is, that a reality has to be faced is that, again, Dwight Eisenhower didn't sit behind Dwight. his... Dwight. <laughs> Dwight. Dwight D. Eisenhower. I like Ike. I like Ike. Um, sitting behind this desk saying, I'm going to build a science city, like mm-hmm. many other world leaders subsequently did. You mm-hmm. know, I talk in the book about how Charles de Gaulle came to Palo Alto in 1960 to check it out, to mm-hmm. see what France could build one of those things. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been going on for a while. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of serendipity, happy accidents, products of history. That doesn't mean that there isn't a sort of additive, catalytic role that public policy can play and right. should play. Right, absolutely, and should play 100%, including infrastructure. So I want to finish up by talking about, let's let's go through the people on this book cover. Yes. I want you to give one or two words for each of them before we finish. Okay. Like looking back in history, what will be their legacy? All Steve right. Jobs. Uh, the founder of all founders. Mark Zuckerberg. Connected the world. All right, Bill Gates. <laughs> for good, good or for ill. <laughs> yeah, for good or for ill. The world's not a nice place, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Bill Gates, um, boy wonder turned grown up. Mm-hmm. Sergey Brin. Uh, Sergey's on there in part because he's the child of immigrants, and mm-hmm. I think the the role of immigrants, talk about that. immigrants, refugees, right. first and second generation are absolutely critical. Free so, movement of people and capital—that's the people it's part. It's appalling what's going on in this country. This is going to do more damage to our future innovation yes. than anything else, and not just the good people. Like I can't stand it when I'm in Washington. I'm like, yes. you don't know who the good person is. That is right. 
They could be someone coming across the Rio Grande right now. Hello. This probably is some girl, probably little is. girl coming across the Rio Grande. Yeah. Andy Grove, who's also mm-hmm. on that cover. Yes, Andy Grove. Famous, you know, only the paranoid survive. Mm-hmm. Fam- legendary uh, CEO of Intel. Teenage refugee from Hungary. You know, he comes in in the 40s. I think probably the immigration officer that encountered him was like, okay, nice, smart, smart kid, mm-hmm. kind of geeky, but not thinking, yeah. you know, that's what he's going to be. He, could, he didn't speak good English. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's this, yeah, the, and, and the tech industry, too, you know, when they advocate for immigration, it's often like H-1B visas. It's kind of a self-interested, mm-hmm. you know, we want people who can work in our companies. Yes, and Mm-hmm. Like you need you need the people who are not yeah who are swimming over the Rio Grande. You need right. the kids who right. are not who are you, and you want to reinstate or are this. just legal immigrants and yeah. allow them to come in and not understand their promise. Yet. Yes, uh, Bezos, Bezos, the everything store. I'm fascinated by Jeff Bezos. If yes. he's listening, I want to write his biography. <laughs> I think a lot of people do. <laughs> What's interesting is if you think about it, uh, three Ellison Jobs and. Uh, Bezos are adopted, which is interesting. Yes, in different ways. It's Very a really interesting. interesting. It's a really interesting. I don't know. It's, 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 I don't know if there's a link or at all. All right, I'm going to include some women. Sheryl Sandberg. Sheryl Sandberg. Um, she's going to be one of the iconic figures of the Silicon Valley's teens. Indeed. I don't know what the, I don't know what the end of her story is going to be. Okay. But it's not. It's not done. Uh, Meg Whitman. eBay. Uh, th- she's a grown up in the room. Mm-hmm. She's a grown up in the room. Um, I think you know. I wonder if she had been. CEO of Uber, what Uber would be. Yeah. I mean, they have a grown-up running it now. That was close. Yeah, he was. was, (laughs) I don't think he's having a good time. (laughs) (laughs) That's a hard hard job. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, I think what I always joke about Dara is like every time he, when initially he got there, every time he opened the drawer, there was a dead body in it. And then secondly, the dead body is the economic problem there. So finishing up, what does Silicon Valley look like? Is it more diverse? Is it, what's the thing that will kill it? Because all these innovative cultures do die for a lot of the very similar reasons, whether it's going to be Rome or Greece or Britain or whatever. These are innovative technological cultures that died largely because they were less tolerant, they're less immigration, less the kind of thing. What's the critical thing it has to do instead of focusing on what's going to kill it, which you can name in a yeah. million things, too much money, um, yeah. too, too much wealth. Is there going to be a Silicon Valley or is it going to be somewhere else? I, I think Silicon Valley is remarkably resilient. You know, it's obituary has been written again and again. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been a, you know, dot-com bust, mm-hmm. name your bust, and it's all over, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and then it comes back. Mm-hmm. And even in the midst of the bust, you know, the depths of the dot-com bust, you know, what did the dot-com bust do for Google, for example? Yeah. Allowed them to buy a lot of really cheap computers mm-hmm. and hire a lot of really great engineers, and that helped. Google become Google. Um, so there's a resilience there, and there's a network that I think is not going to go away easily. But you're right. Everything fades. Detroit was the most innovative city in America a century ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and why did Detroit fade? It faded both because of technological obsolescence, but also because of racism, because mm-hmm. of, yeah. of, of kind of society. So I think getting the society right, inequality is, you know, people are asking me, like, what's the next big technology? You know, mm-hmm. what's going to be the next thing? So well, you know, we're at the end of the S-curve. What's the next thing? It, it's going to—you de- need to have a healthy society to be the foundation for 100%. it. 100%. You need to have upward mobility. You need to have affordable education. You need to have the kids who are the, you know, these working class, middle class kids, like the people in strivers. my book, these strivers who get on the escalator or mm-hmm. an elevator and that it's more broad based. I mean, I think the next Silicon Valley, whatever or wherever it is, needs to do a correction and think about, you know, before it was really good at providing advantages for white men, most mm-hmm. of whom were born in the United States at a certain time. And now let's think about a broader geography. I mean, yeah. Silicon Valley is no longer a place. I think that something I actually came to appreciate more as I was writing the book mm-hmm. was this interconnection between 
Seattle and Boston and Austin and the sure. Valley and other places. And to say that it's just one place in California, now is it going to go away as the command and control center anytime soon? Probably not. Right. Um, there's money there. There's expertise there. There's a reason that everyone keeps on going there, even though it's so darn expensive. Mm-hmm. There's face-to-face contact that can't be replaced Absolutely. by, you know, if you and I were Skyping this interview, it would be a different vibe. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, we're all getting on planes and enlarging our carbon footprint so we can, yeah. you know, have 100%. that connection. I think it is a question of the the vast wealth and the sort of distractions, you know. Like, some days I'm like, stop your intermittent fasting and have a sandwich. Like, just have a friggin' sandwich <laughs> <laughs> Too much money makes you, and and you oh, know, and that's God. not new. I mean, sometimes old time valley people will be like, it didn't used to be about the money. I was like, I it guys was are always about, about the, money. the money, but it's the application <laughs> of the money and yes. what it make the mentality it brings yeah. to you of no making mistakes. And yeah. I think it's. Uh, Sometimes I think whenever I, I get something like, oh, Carrie, you so mean, I'm like, why do they think I'm mean when I'm not? Like, it's just, why is that the, it's it's a fascinating thing because I'm like, cr- the ability, criticism is not violence, I like no. to say, you know what I mean? No. And the ability to have good feedback within yourselves rather than being victimized is really critically important to innovation, I think. And I think um, the the OG Valley people would agree with you. Think yes, about Bob they Noyce, would. think about Charlie's percent. They'd be like, th- those guys were, you had to take it. Right, <laughs> they exactly. They were very critical of one right, another. Right, which I think is important, the most important part yeah, of that, which is self-reflection and Absolutely. an ability to do that. But anyway, Margaret, this is really interesting. I recommend you all read this book. It's going to be taught in schools. You're a history, so. but you're a history professor. <laughs> yeah. What's your next thing you're doing? Um, I got a lot of ideas. Um, I don't think that Jeff Bezos will let me write his biography. Right. So. <laughs> Bezos? Bezos no, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm always interested in this intersection. Of, he is fascinating. You're right. He is you're fascinating. The right one to pick. Brad Stone, I think, is coming out with a sequel he to is, his He book. is. And he's a, he's a, he's a brave but man. But someone's got to write just book. Great the way uh, Walter Isaacson's wrote Steve's book. Yeah, but, but you know, there's time. There's time. Jeff is not prof- dead yet, so he's not going to—he's uh, going to—that'll yeah. be an interesting book. I did joke as I was uh, to, as I was doing the latter parts of the book that I was like, the next book, is, everyone's going to be dead. I can't I can't deal with people who are <laughs> yes, still making I news. I agree. Someone, people keep wanting me to write books. I'm like, I want a dead person. I want someone I don't have to talk to. I'm going to go back to the 1870s. With. Exactly. There's got to be someone there. Anyway, Margaret, I really appreciate it. Her book is Margaret O'Mara. She's a history professor at the University of Washington and the author of The Code, Silicon Valley and the remaking of America. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Kara. It was great. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Margaret, where can people find you online? You can find me at Margaret O'Mara on Twitter, and you can also find me at MargaretOmara.com. Great. And if you like, and also at the University of Washington and teaching, yes. of course. What are you teaching this semester? I am teaching, this semester, I'm teaching uh, History of the American Presidency. So oh, wow. next week, you can come and hear me talk about George Washington. Oh, that's, a, I love that George Washington. Every time, every history <laughs> book I read about him, I know that there's all kinds of issues yeah. in the day slave owning. But I got to say, God, he had a lot of maturity for of all of them because they're all a bunch of babies. Oh, they're kids. It was you know, the ultimate startup. That, but he's the only one that like yeah. ever always says the right thing. A little yeah. like Dwight Eisenhower. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, just like where is that kind of mentality? Um, and, you know, of course, everybody is flawed. But I find him, every time I read one of his speeches, I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. We could use a little George Washington yeah. these days. Anyway, uh, he's, I've switched to being my favorite president. Who's your favorite president? Oh, that's a hard question Oh, come to on. Ask. Pick oh. one. Stack rank them. I love Stack rank. Uh, Stack rank. You know, you got to like Lincoln, obviously. Oh, Lincoln, both Roosevelt's. Yeah. Um, just, well, Teddy Roosevelt, mostly for the good material. Yeah. I'm fascinated with Lyndon Johnson, just uh, also good material. I haven't read the Carol um, I don't have it. I don't I, have six I, years. Right? I, I'm, I'm still, still reading the Hamilton 
gun book. <laughs> I think it's going to end badly, but I'm six years later. Yeah, there's guns still involved. Reading, there's guns involved. <laughs> Gun violence. Anyway, uh, please read all of Margaret's books. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you share it with a friend and make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media Pivot and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. <laughs>